One of our pupils, Susan Foreman, came into this yard. Really? In here? Young man, is it reasonable to suppose that anybody would be inside a cupboard like that? Mm. What do you say, Perry? We can go on nature walks, have picnics, and jolly evenings around the campfire. Gentlemen, I've got news for you. This lighthouse is under attack, and by morning we might all be dead. It's a brilliant idea. It's so simple, only you could have thought of it. Oh. I'm the doctor. These are my new best friends. I'm the doctor, and if there's one thing I can do, it's talk. This is the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast with your host, Eric Branson. My dear, I don't think he's as stupid as he seems. My dear, nobody could be as stupid as he seems. Now drop your weapons, or I'll kill him with this deadly jelly, baby. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. On this podcast, we travel all of time and space discussing Doctor Who in a completely random order. This time we land on Doctor Who and the Cricketman by James Goss. It's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. I'm going to need a swap team ready to mobilise street-level maps covering all of Florida, a pot of coffee, 12 jammy dodgers and a fez. An apple a day keeps the, uh... No, never mind. Allons-y. I'm sorry? It's French. Well, let's go. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. I'm Eric Gilbranson, and we are taking a look at yet another randomly selected Doctor Who story. And joining me this time, I'm not even going to say month anymore because it's gotten out of hand, but <laughs> this, <laughs> this time as uh, my co-host of uh, late, Mr. Asad Kiski, calling in all the way from Pakistan. How are you this morning in Pakistan? Oh, not too bad. It's um, nice and sunny and like 70s. <laughs> so Yeah, that sounds nice. But... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is the international version of the Police Box of the Junkyard podcast. First time we've had somebody calling in from overseas. But <laughs> so anyway. maybe not the last. Uh, also, <laughs> Yeah, maybe not. Hopefully not. But, uh, also joining me from the Doctor Who Collectors podcast and uh, somebody who has joined us on the show many times before, Mr. Larry Van Mersberg. And how's it going, Larry? Oh, it's great to be here, Eric. Thank you. It's going great. Thank you. Good. And as uh, everybody can probably tell from the title of the podcast you're listening to today, we are going to be talking about the Doctor Who novel, um, actually, the audiobook of the Doctor Who novel, Doctor Who and the Cricket Men, which is uh, it's going to give us a bit of a mouthful here, but is written by James Goss, based on a story by Douglas Adams, and read and performed by Dan Starkey, who we will remember from the modern Doctor Who series, who as playing Santarans, most famously the Woody Santaran Butler Strax, or you know, unconventional, unknowingly witty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so everybody probably remembers Dan Starkey from that. But um, yeah, so Doctor Who and the Cricket Men. Um, let me get started, and I'll ask you guys to bear with me because my synopsis from the back of the box of the Cricket Men uh, audiobook is a bit of a mouthful. So I'll try to read through this as quickly as I can uh, so we can get talking about it. But Doctor Who and the Cricket Men. Dan Starkey reads a brand new novelization of a lost Doctor Who adventure by Douglas Adams. The Doctor promised Romana the end of the universe, so she's less than impressed when what she gets is a cricket match. Even worse, the award, cer award ceremony is interrupted by 11 figures in white uniforms and peaked skull helmets wielding bat-shaped weapons that fire lethal bolts of light into the screaming crowd. The cricket men are back. 
Millions of years ago, the people of Cricket learned they were not alone in the universe and promptly launched a crusade to wipe out all other life forms. After a long and bloody conflict, the Time Lords imprisoned Cricket within an envelope of slow time, a prison that could only be opened with the Wicket Gate Key, a device that resembles, to human eyes at least, an oversized set of Cricket stumps. The Doctor and Romana are now tugged into a pangalactic conga with fate as they rush to stop the Cricket men gaining all five pieces of the key. If they fail, the entire cosmos faces a fiery retribution that will leave nothing but ashes. A complete and unabridged reading by Dan Starkey of the novelization by James Goss, based on recently discovered material from Douglas Adams' archive. CD1 also includes the PDF introduction and appendices. Okay, so the reason... I subjected you, you and everybody listening to the long synopsis there as I feel like it might be necessary with explaining the intricacies of the plot of this book. So hopefully um, everybody can who hasn't read it can at least follow along if they care to. So um, anyway, let's uh, let's jump in right away. Uh, and is this a book that either of you had read before? And if not, what are you, what were your first impressions of Doctor Who and the Cricket Men? Um, no, I, um, I hadn't uh, read it before. And um, as although I guess as we'll discuss later, it felt like I had read at least part of it uh, before. <laughs> um, but uh, otherwise, I mean, it's it's uh, it's an entertaining uh, enough uh, listen. Uh, I mean, if you're listening to it, then it's a good many hours, uh, ten hours or something, nine ten hours of. Uh, yeah, I think like 10, almost I eleven. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Um, but yeah, it's it's entertaining. I mean, James Boss is not my favoriteest of writers, but um, as I said, it's entertaining enough. He tries to get a lot of the uh, voice of uh, Douglas Adams into it. So, but I'm sure we'll discuss these issues a little more later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we sure will. How about you, Larry? Well, uh, I actually read the story many many years ago when uh douglas adams book life the universe and everything came out <laughs> and when i got the book and i started reading and i'm going wow this is eerily familiar and i read further and i go wow and i didn't realize of course when the book came out i had no idea that that book came out or that story actually precedes the hitchhiker's guide uh book even though that's you know it's been a long time out um and then, of course, I finished the uh, I, this my second uh, go through with the audiobook, because I think Dan Starkey does one of the best Tom Baker impersonations yeah. I've ever heard, and I'm actually shocked that they just couldn't spend a little more money and get Tom to do it himself. <laughs> but uh, yeah. that, that was that would have been a little, you know I'm surprised Big Finish didn't jump on this one instead of BBC. But it, it's uh, it's a tremendously intricate, very interloven story that uh, will. You know, I, I think it'll keep you on your, uh, you know, it'll keep you listening at least through the entire set. Yeah, and it's certainly, and Dan Starkey has my vote that I, and God forbid, but we're all, we all are, are going to come to that day one day eventually where Tom Baker is no longer able to do, you know, the big finish stuff and, and it's no, you know, it's no longer with us. I hate to say it, but it's going to mm -hmm. happen someday. It has to. Um, but <laughs> uh, Dan Starkey's got my vote after listening to this of somebody who could definitely jump in and play the fourth doctor. I mean, he's, he's, mm -hmm. he's got like the cadence and he seems to understand the way kind of the super 
unique way that Tom Baker would take a line and kind of, I mean, you never know what Tom Baker is going to do with it because he's Tom Baker, but, but Dan Starkey's got his own kind of unique, his twist on that. And he really gets into the fourth doctor thing. I think he's fantastic as pretty much all of his characters in this. They're distinct and he's just a really great reader. And as you guys know, consuming audiobooks like a lot of times, you know, 90% of my enjoyment of an audiobook comes down to is the reader is, are they, mm. It's their performance, it's the way that they, their cadence, whatever, if it gels with me. And Dan Starkey was really, really great, and specifically great for this subject material, like Tom Baker, uh, a fourth Doctor story, and the Douglas Adams material, he's just fantastic for. But, yeah, um, I definitely heard that for as a potential Tom Baker uh, stand-in for the future. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about... Um, Douglas Adams as the creator of this story and also James Goss as the author of this story. Um, Douglas Adams, um, I guess we'll go into the production history of this a little bit. Adams, Douglas Adams pitched this originally as a script for the Doctor Who TV program. It was the first thing, correct me if I'm wrong, that he wrote for Doctor Who and it was rejected by the showrunners at the time. However, I yes. think it was Bob Holmes that pulled him aside and said although we're not going to use this um it, we had like a lot of the ideas and your writing's a lot of potential keep keep at it and you know we'll we'll, we'll keep working with you we'll get something on eventually and, and then eventually he ended up writing the pirate planet which they got greenlit and eventually became his first accepted story for the series prior to his this is all prior to his becoming the script editor on the show um i believe and uh so yeah this this story has been out there in the ether for quite a while in many different forms and then as we talked about it it not only does it pitched as a you know episode of doctor who for tom baker uh but also pitched then um which i believe he was douglas adams and tom baker were working together on putting together a spec script for a feature film using this idea mm -hmm. of the cricket men as well do you what do you guys think of the would this have made it and a good feature fourth doctor feature film i i feel like it's got a lot of the elements that would have been really great but I, I personally think it would have been a great film however it would have been way underfunded as <laughs> right. uh as most of the, of the time because we're talking 1978 mm -hmm. um or so uh and i i thought wow this the effects and all the thing which is also you know the same reason why the second series of hitchhiker's guide didn't get commissioned because this was going to be the basis for that show and they you know the and if you've seen the first season of hitchhiker's guide which i enjoy it's grossly underfunded yeah. and it looks like a you know each episode looks like a bad doctor who you know <laughs> yeah just, it's uh, even as far yeah. as you know the, uh, the just just you know and i'm sure that bothered douglas adams because you know they just could not realize his vision uh that well and i i, I honestly think that if if they could have done it right if they couldn't got a uh got a studio behind it and tom baker would have been in it it would have been tom baker's ticket to name his price and he probably would have stayed on doctor who longer he probably would have been you know very difficult to follow up uh if because that would have been worldwide fandom for this yeah. type of movie especially calling in all of the elements that you know that are in this book it would have been quite a show and i would have definitely had a front seat for it <laughs> yeah what about you, Asad? Any, any interest in seeing the, you know, in an alternate universe where it exists and seeing the Doctor Who and the Cricketmen movie from 1978? 
I think it would certainly have been quite a spectacular, probably a com competition to Star Wars A New Hope. Um, I imagine the movie might have uh, been, because the book is certainly much more intricate in terms of locations and all that compared to um, the actual uh, life, the universe and everything, which I imagine is more like what Douglas Adams would have written. And I guess the print version of Cricket Man actually has the, as an appendix, Douglas Adams, the notes that they found uh, related to it. And, so. and the um, CD version of it comes with a PDFs of all of that stuff. That's what um, I get for just getting it on Audible. The, <laughs> I, and I didn't realize it until it was, it wasn't really too late. I should have sent you that stuff, but anyway. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, yeah I did, I did read over the notes. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying it would have been a uh, good, I think it might have been a little difficult to categorize it as that, like, what exactly is this? Is this a sci-fi spoof? Is this a serious space adventure? That's why I think it might have been a little difficult to categorize in that respect. <laughs> but in many ways, similar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in many ways, similar to Hitchhiker's Guide itself. I think some people have that issue with that. Like, what? what exactly is this? Is this a parody? Is it a spoof? Is it a, you know, a real sci-fi story? And the answer is actually all of the above, but yeah. it's, um, above. yeah. <laughs> I think it works a little better for Hitchhikers since Hitchhikers is its own contained oh, yeah. universe where a lot of where absurdity well, happens. This you have to <laughs> fit in with oh, Doctor yeah. Who. <laughs> and I've heard that criticism in general of the fourth Doctor, later fourth Doctor um, period of the show that, you know, it kind of becomes the Tom Baker comedy hour or whatever for a while there. And um, I'm not sure I agree with that criticism, but I've certainly heard it. And so there are people out there that, you know, thought it went that direction a little bit anyway. And then this might have pushed it even further <laughs> into that spectrum. Yeah. That's what everybody was starting with. The Graham Williams must go, just like we have yeah. <laughs> all the showrunners yeah. now. <laughs> right. Yeah, you have to hate the showrunner. Are you even a fan? Right. No, just, um, just kidding. Just kidding. Um so yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the way that James Goss kind of channels Douglas Adams in this. Um, I feel like he does such a sincere imitation of Adams and that that being, I've agreed with you, as you said, Asad in the past, I've read a couple of James Goss, Doctor Who's books and uh, none of them, not that they're bad, but none of them ranking up in my favorites really. Um, this one, however, he does such a like really good imitation of Douglas Adams. I feel like his own style is a bit, lost in it it's really just a douglas adams book kind of you know fleshed out even in his in his fleshing all the story items out he really nails the the douglas adams thing so like hats off to him in my opinion hats off to him in that um i think he really nails writing the fourth doctor and romana too and this whole era and it just like really really gels well with the douglas adams period of the show and the whole thing works as a great tribute but i wanted to, to both of you guys being people that have read uh, Douglas Adams' other work, like what did you think of his, um, I keep calling it imitation, but really it's a, it's an homage to Douglas Adams and uh, his style throughout this book. Well, I, I thought it was dead on because I've, I've read all of the Douglas Adams um, books many times over the years because I, I still find him to be one of the most uh, brilliant um, satire writers uh, and taking, you know, ordinary things and turning bureaucracy into a major catastrophe um and his tone and his is his the way he presents things is exactly the way james goss did it and he must have been working from really detailed notes or was a student of his writing or some some 
thing that kind of said because if I didn't if I didn't know that Gosp was writing it, I thought Douglas Adams would have written this. And there was a lot of the humor and a lot of the the, the double meaning stuff and some of the some of the stuff that happens in life, the universe, and everything all happens in the Cricket Men. Mm-hmm. Which uh, and, it, and there's a lot of you know Tom Baker, at, especially Tom. You know when they're at the Lord's C- Cricket Ground and, and doing all that, and it's like it's a race memory. No, it's just an angry crowd at a cricket match, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's it's very Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I thought it was really well written for that. And and some of the uh, there was another author that finished Douglas Adams' uh, final book. Uh, I can't think of his name, but it wasn't James Goss. And he, I don't think he captured it at all, but James Goss definitely did. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of uh, of the style? I think he does. A, yeah, he does. As you both have said, he does an excellent job of channeling uh, Douglas Adams. So, um, yeah, I think there's really not much more to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I really think he hits the nail on the head to the point where James Goss kind of disappears into the background. And that's not an insult to him. Like, I think it actually is, is a, a great compliment to him um, mm-hmm. because it, it, it feels effortless. This is like you pulled a Douglas Adams book off the shelf. And I, I assume that was, you know, what he was going for and he accomplished it. Like, yeah. Right. I mean, that, that, although in some ways, maybe that makes this uh, slightly difficult to place and not trying to be one of those overly serious Doctor Who fans, but like if <laughs> yeah. the actual Doctor Who book, you know, like when we're discussing episodes or stuff, then we like can make jokes about look at look at Colin look at uh, Colin Baker's feather, look at the feather on his helmet, and look at all the comfy sofas they have all over Gallifrey. But when that <laughs> actually comes into the book as a commentary about Gallifrey, then you're kind of it's a very fourth wall breaking it, sort of thing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It was one of the things I, I wrote down and uh, made note of about the book was that um, not only does he break the fourth wall quite a bit and makes fan comments like, you know, j- in jokes to fans, but he also um, makes jokes out of some of the plot contrivances that we've seen before in Doctor Who and kind of, you know, the cliches and whatever. And even kind of mm-hmm. pokes foot at maybe there's a few plot holes in this story itself. And uh um, yeah, so it's it's fun. Um, trying to place this in the canon somewhere would be, you know, problematic. But I don't know. It's as an experiment mm-hmm. and as a way to finish, you know, a, a lost story by a great writer. I think it's it's yeah. a huge success. But uh, from what I understand, it's it's somewhere between it's somewhere in the horns of Nymon uh, realm because they do refer to that. That's mm-hmm. the latest story they refer to. So sometime after that um, is where it probably falls in the canon. They haven't exactly placed it yet. I'm waiting for experts greater than I to do that. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to consult the Complete Adventures website and see where this falls, where he's mm-hmm. placed that. Because that's uh, if you guys haven't ever looked at that, it's a pretty impressive um, uh, timeline for doctor who canonology and i don't know is this new enough to be in the latest volume of a history i i also didn't look it up i don't think so i don't think it's there um, but Another thing we could do is wait for Tony Witt to put it out on his podcast because he places it in order wherever he thinks it should be. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Does it count, though? It's, it's not. It's... <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Can uh, put a request in that they cover this one as part of that. <laughs> I think he, will, he is getting to that one. It's yeah. just, uh, it, I just don't know where it's placed. Where it yet, falls, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So another thing that I think James Goss does with this that is not in the and I don't I know Assad mentioned he didn't get a chance mostly because some some jerk didn't send him the stuff, but uh, didn't get a chance to read over the Douglas Adams notes. Um, but uh, one thing I think James Goss really does well here that is not really in the Adams treatment is, uh, well, not in the Adams treatment at all because Romano's not in it. He uses a generic uh, companion called Jane mm -hmm. to as a placeholder because he wasn't sure where this was going to land and who, because uh, Elizabeth Sladen was talking about leaving the program. They weren't sure where they were going next at the time when he wrote it. So he just literally writes in a, cookie cutter companion which actually hurts his version of it a little bit because he doesn't have anything for her to do or have any idea about who she is um so romana here i feel like is goss's greatest contribution because not only is she really really well realized and seems very much like the character that we see um played by lala ward on the show but she it's really kind of becomes Romana's story in a lot of ways. And we get all these really, really great moments of introspection that we don't get in the show. And she's just this really, really great and ultimately even more lovable character than she is on screen. Um, he gets the, the back and forth to the doctor perfectly, but I just like that we, it, we often get introspection from the companions um, because that's the way we relate to the doctor. I always find it problematic when an author tries to get into the doctor's head and write that way. And some people do it. Um, it tends not to be my favorite way to relate because trying to understand the, you know, um, alien understanding and whatever, trying to rationalize the doctor doesn't seem like a great idea. But we, so we often see the doctor through the companion's eyes. It's really interesting to see him through Romana's eyes because she is his peer in many ways. Um, so I, I think this is the, um, and uh, let you guys weigh in and if you have any thoughts on on Romana here, but I really, really think she shines in this book. This is like Romana's story. And that that is not really present in the in the cricket men treatment. Well, I, I thought I thought Romana was well characterized in this show because uh, in this particular script, because she actually gets a lot to do. She's got her own independent storyline at one point. Um, she's coming up with the way to save the earth from being destroyed and all that you know, that interaction with the prime minister of England, which was a really great part of the book. <laughs> and a lot of times she's, she's just as, you know, snarky to the doctor as, as she would be on the show. And I thought it was a well-written part for her. Yeah, no, yeah. He does a very good uh, job with uh, Romana. Like you said, she gets a lot of stuff to do off on her, off, off by herself, um, finding her own uh, companion. <laughs> so to speak. Yep. Um, also, it was an interesting little uh, stuff that he went into about how she started off as just a nice, proper time lady who, you know, just wanted to follow the rules and then has become just as uh, anarchic as uh, the doctor when she meets uh, Borusa again. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like how we get to we get to hear some of her thoughts about, you know, the doctor and her kind of the way some of his habits uh, she finds obnoxious and, and <laughs> um, just a little like nitpicky stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun. I, I had a note here that she says that the doctor would never be able to fight a war because he's of his impatience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some great lines and that's a, that's a Douglas Adams line if ever I heard it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, there is like a, a, a very small subplot, and this does come out of the Douglas Adams treatment of Romano getting possessed and becoming, you know, right. 
the bad the bad guy for a, a few minutes of the book. It's really quite he's min, James Goss has minimized it. Um, and I mean, not that in treatment, it was pretty brief anyway, but but yeah, he's minimized it to I mean, the only reason I say that's unfortunate is because the companion getting possessed is such a, you know, uh, mm-hmm. such a common trope in, in Doctor Who. It's a little bit of a yawn moment, like, ah, possessed. That's uh, but anyway. Yeah, it, it bothered me a little bit because Romana is not just an ordinary companion. She's also a Time Lord. Right. And Time Lords are not supposed to be susceptible to this type of thing. And I wonder, of course, when it was written, that may not have been fully established or you know like so the character was kind of fit in later so they probably didn't didn't go back and go wait a minute she can't be possessed there was nobody checking that can also emphasize how dangerous the cricket men are (laughs) right yeah (laughs) they're pretty bad dudes (laughs) yeah yeah so and that's another thing is like they're you know out of all the evil robots or androids or robots that believe themselves to be androids that actually end up being robots, I think is the way it actually plays out in this book. But um, there's, and they, you know, he draws some focus to, to the distinction between those two things. Um, and we've seen an awful lot of them in Doctor Who. And I know we've never gotten to see with our eyes what the cricket men look like, but how do you guys think they stack up against the other robots? Let's say from like robots of death or, um, yeah, the many other times we've seen killer <laughs> robots on the show. Well, I've never seen the Cricket Men illustrated, but when um, when I was listening to the Hitchhiker's Guide radio um, play, when they do the Cricket Men, they get described as as white skull helmets and wearing cricket whites mm-hmm. and having red eyes. And that was that was about the, as much of the description. And they all, of course, carried a cricket bat that had a blade on the end. So that was their that was their description. They seemed very, very uh, they're single minded, determined, and they wanted to just kill everything. I mean, uh, I, I, I mean, I get so it's just I can visualize what they probably would have looked like. And um, I think that's one of the issues is that it would. You really could not have taken them seriously if you saw them uh, on, on screen. <laughs> so, right. Uh, think about it. You know, in 1978, does it? I mean, I guess that's around the same time that uh, Robots of Death was produced, and I do feel like those were sufficiently creepy. Yeah. Um, robots. I mean, they did a great job with that. So maybe it was. You know, maybe they would have pulled this off very well. well I imagine. I mean, they would have used like uh, cricket uh, helmets, and it's it's not like there was any. I mean, the, Cybermen from the 80s were using uh, cricket bats and <laughs> things like that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Just uh, painted silver. So, and uh, yeah, I'm sure they would have used exactly the same uh, red light effect that they did for robots of death to <laughs> make the helmets glow, <laughs> eyes glow. Yeah. Robots. <laughs> so, I guess let's dive in uh, because there's a lot to unpack and we won't get to everything. So, this is certainly a show that is not going to be a substitute for actually, you know picking up this audiobook and giving it a listen. Um, but let's try to crack a little bit of what this story is all about and like the core story of, um, as, as we heard in the overly long synopsis, is uh, essentially about a planet called Cricket, who is the planet itself is surrounded by a cloud of gas that uh, um, leads them to believe that they are the only thing in all of creation like they are the end-all be-all of everything and suddenly uh when some 
pieces of a spacecraft fall into their atmosphere and crash on their planet, they are suddenly awoken to the fact that they are not alone and they react violently to it and want to destroy all life in the universe. Um, thus creating, <laughs> as explained very briefly in the book as this uh, leads them to be very industrious and uh, technology makes many sudden leaps and then they create these army army of robot <laughs> soldiers called the cricket men um, that you know take to the stars destroying uh, all of creation so um right yeah did uh what were your there's a lot of what J james goss takes this basic premise and obviously then the, then the doctor becomes you know involved this is an old the cricket men to him and to Romana are a, you know, child's bedtime story on Gallifrey, something that parents use to kind of scare their children. Right. Uh, he, you know, comes to find out that they are real and they are actually, you know, they're trying to break cricket out of the Time Lord prison that it's been placed in. And um, yeah, so what do you guys, did you have favorite moments of this james goss does a lot of flushing this out the the, the, the douglas adams treatment sticks to this storyline pretty well they do have mm -hmm. like towards the uh and we find out that this is um you know the plot all the plot of a supercomputer called which is also from the um hitchhiker's book as well so maybe yep, larry i'll let you computer. dive into yep. that a little bit but hacktar a supercomputer that has yep. kind of plotted this whole thing and there's this whole kind of other plot of this you know this has all happened before on this planet called alobia and they um where hacktar was originated um getting long-winded it's easy to do trying to explain this so because <laughs> there's a, a lot of lot of substance here i guess my question was what i was getting to was uh do you guys have favorite moments of of this and do you have like a favorite sub story because there's a lot of little kind of episodic asides um all that i feel i like are very clever and, and worthy of their own little stories but um what are favorite moments i think one of, one of my favorite moments is when they have to go back and borrow the book from Cronotus to go to Shada to prevent the cricket men from releasing more cricket men that are imprisoned on the Shada, the mm -hmm. prison planet, which was another Douglas Adams creation. Yeah, <laughs> that, was that was another Douglas Adams yeah, well, creation that was never finished and then finished and then another finished another way. And finally, we got an animation. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just I just thought that was pretty cool uh, how they had that's that that whole uh, plot line where they had to get the book back and then go through this whole thing again to go back to Shada. I thought that was a, an interesting thing. And of course, uh, you know, the, the pavilion that becomes a TARDIS or, <laughs> yeah. or the TARDIS that is a pavilion. <laughs> and yeah. I thought that was pretty, pretty funny as well there. And I guess the whole interaction between Romana and who I think is Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister of England, mm -hmm. that was really precious and very, very brilliant. Those are my favorite parts. Asad? Um, I liked uh, that. I thought certainly that uh, planet whose uh, name I now um, forget, where everybody is like just very obnoxious and legally um, uh, <laughs> legally minded, um, where they have to right. try to get the silver bale of uh, justice. It's um, oh, right. <laughs> that was very, very um, Adam-esque. And it's interesting that like, even the doctor finds himself completely helpless against the sheer bloody-mindedness of where, the people on that planet. <laughs> is that the one where everybody is offended very yes. easily? And then, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
yeah. your, your offer of help offends me. Yeah, <laughs> offends, offends. yeah they <laughs> land themselves in court for offering to help someone when they first land there, right? That's the right, <laughs> and that's that's a better plot to get the silver bail than what he treated it in the Hitchhiker's Guide thing. They had to go to a party yes. where the silver bail was the award for the most gratuitous word of the you know word. yes of, of word. the English Belgium. language. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Belgium, right? It was the American version. They I do remember it. it I have <laughs> read Life, the Universe, and everything, but it's been oh years and years, yeah. so it's like it's pretty vague. Although, as I was reading, listening to this book, like it, it was coming back to me. So, but right. I just like reread it uh, just a couple, of, just to specifically to be able to compare it with right. the yeah. Cricket Man. So yeah, so there's a lot yeah. I feel like uh, when familiar. I <laughs> yeah. The other thing I feel like I what found, I was sorry. Nope, go ahead. I keep cutting no, you no, off. The other, follow... <laughs> the other thing that I found interesting was, um, I, and I don't know if that's ever explored in any other things, I, uh, were the war tardises and how he describes that, um, that because they're designed to be so violent, they even start affecting the cardinals who theoretically control them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting thing that I felt could be explored further, and I might actually like to see explored further <laughs> in something or the other. Yeah, that would be interesting, especially I, I feel like that wouldn't be too much of a stretch to tie that into some of the uh, time war um, audio. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose it wouldn't. It's a bit of a silly concept, so they'd have to be careful. about. It. I mean, it works fine in Douglas Adams right. thing, but like, um, yeah, getting it into like a, a serious story about the time war might I don't but I feel like it could fit. Like you could do something with that. It'd be interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think there wasn't there. A, there's a little bit of an epilogue about what an, the, the war tardises end up kind of. Um, yeah, they're kind of just left hanging out there. And uh, from what I recall, yeah. or am I forgetting? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No, you're right. They, they were kind of left out and then they kind of knew what they were going to do and then they disappeared. Right. <laughs> And so okay. that's kind of where right. they left it because <laughs> Romana had, had piloted one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, yeah, it was a very interesting way they, that he dealt with that. Yes. He is setting up for a sequel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as far as I could tell, I believe that was, and I don't know, according to James Goss, like there was the treatment, like the spec script treatment that Douglas Adams wrote. And that's what was published with the book. Um, but then there was also, just tons and tons of notes he had on the story different versions here and there so uh, i assume it came from adams somewhere but like how much of it was adams and how much was you know goss kind of invented uh to fill in the gaps i'm not sure but i yeah that that was a cool idea i, I agree um I'm trying to remember the details of all of it like it's it's a little mind-boggling and if it wasn't 10 hours long i think I, this is one i definitely would have uh taken in a second time but i just don't didn't have the time to do so i may i may for fun go back and um, check it out because I do feel like there's details there that you know I'm I'm already <laughs> have lost a few so um, I do feel yes. like uh, so. I said I was listening to it while I usually I was listening to it while driving so I couldn't really make notes <laughs> right yeah. Yeah. yeah and a lot of times when I do audiobooks I'm listening to it and I have periods of you know where I'm able to intensely concentrate and then there's like something going on or I'm cleaning or I'm doing dishes or I'm you know, doing something else and like, I, I'm hearing mm-hmm. it and I'm getting the story, but like, I may not be like in that intense concentration you need to get all the little details of something like this. So 
Um, I'm toying with the idea of maybe even picking up a print copy of it and reading it someday because I feel like then you get the little the details a little better. At least for me, that's the way it works for me. I, I know everyone's different. The print but... book is 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 a great read. I I started with that before the audiobook came out, mm-hmm. and um, it was really a good. I mean, it it really caught it kept me focused for at least an hour at a time when I was reading it. And um, it was really well written. That's why I, I go back to I'm thinking I haven't done that in a while. But the audiobook, of course, you know, just the performance mm-hmm. brings that to life. And there's, a, there's even sound effects and things of like that to kind of bring you into that world, which is really, really nice. Since that's how, you know, it kind of kind of if you picture that as a motion picture, you can almost see the sets that, you know, we could do if we had unlimited money. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's the, one of the strengths of like a really good audiobook is it does enrich the text in ways like the book could be perfectly good on its own. And I'm sure this one is it, it sounds for from the audiobook like it would be um, a good good read, but um, it adds an ex, some extra stuff to it. Like you may it may be a little more mm-hmm. difficult to get all those little tiny details of a, out of an audiobook, but what you get in its place is you get a performance and you get um I mean, Dan, Dan Starkey, like we already praised him for, but he's just fantastic in this thing. And not just yes. as the as the doctor, but as a reader. Like, I think he <laughs> nails this Douglas Adams kind of just the whole feeling of it. He's got it down. So, um, yeah. I did think that the musical cues, and I don't know if you felt, I did feel that the musical cues seemed to be an interesting blend of like 70s Doctor Who and the mm-hmm. Hitchhiker's uh, TV show. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely it was very think, close. To both. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say I definitely think some of that Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> brought was leaked into there a little bit, and probably just to mental, you know, tie those, mm. uh, tie it to Douglas Adams a little more. But um, I think it's got a really great core story. Uh, it's not like the most original, like Doctor. There's there's some cliches and some tropes here for, that are just like very Doctor Who, and that's fine. It's a Doctor Who story uh resurrecting it all these years later just based on that 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 original like idea without some of the like flushing out and adding of other ideas might not have been the greatest idea like if they were just to make an episode out of it or whatever um but i think that it's got a good core story and but i do like all the little details they 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 kind of added to it all the other worlds and um at times there are moments where it can feel like I don't want to make this sound too negative because I really did enjoy it. But like there are times when you're kind of like moving along and you're like, well, this was probably added to get, you know, up to novel length or like maybe we didn't really need this whole thing. But but at the same time, they're they're amusing little kind of asides. So um, I don't know. It's it's not really a gripe. I feel like the extra time spent on the Elovia part of the plots in um in the original Douglas Adams treatment, around the time you discover what Hactar is, you get a little bit of a flashback. And in the treatment, he just like straight up tells you, like, I don't know how they would have done it on screen. He's just like, this is what Alovia is. And this is a you know, scenario that kind of played out before. And they created a computer called mm-hmm. Hactar and he created the, the supernova bomb. And it all of this stuff happened. And then it just kind of flashes back to what's going on. So the novel takes you back to you know, it takes the Doctor and Romana to Alovia as this is all actually going on. It's not just a, a an info dump flashback. They actually go and get involved in the story, um, which is cool from a concept point. But at the same time, the Alovia story is so similar to Cricket. 
I feel like they're kind of going and making kind of some of the same arguments and playing the same scenes with the officials on a low. It, it, um, and I also think that it kind of shows the cards of Hactar because the doctor and Hactar have a scene prior to them having their big scene at the end. So it kind of like puts this little bit of a repeat in the whole thing that mm -hmm. I wasn't the biggest fan of, but it's a small gripe because I feel like it was all still fun to read, but from just from a story standpoint, it's kind of like the same story playing two times on like re repeat. Um, I don't know. Um, another thing, well, actually I just, you guys have any thoughts on, on that? Like the Elovia versus cricket um, plots and how they work together. Well, it's interesting to me because in Life of the Universe and everything, they don't really give the name of the planet where Hektar is um, is built and, or even anything about the, the people there. It's just that the, they argued about creating a supernova bomb. And that was that whole that started that whole thing. And so the whole Elovia creation was kind of give it a place. And of course, the doctor has to visit Elovia to try to stop the computer from doing this in the first place. And and it's it's a really important unfortunately in the book in this book it's a really important plot point because if you don't have that information nothing makes sense later mm -hmm. when you know when he's you know spoiler alert you know when he's going to get ready to throw the cricket <laughs> ball which is a supernova bomb at the cricket robot which you don't realize till it's too late and those by the way that is exactly the same scene because Arthur Dent does the same yeah. thing and <laughs> throwing the ball and realizing, you know, Ford's like, no, Arthur, it's a cricket man. It's the same exact thing. And I thought, wow, that was brilliant. The way they just kind of use this, use the, you know, use that whole plot line. But I guess you need the Elovia part plot line in here because of how they use the doctor in it. Yeah. I don't think I have anything much more to add to that. It's interesting that the doctor is kind of a stand in for, Barty Bartfast, Arthur Dent, and Tricia. Uh, <laughs> and Port Brewick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all, yeah, they're all there. <laughs> yeah, the, the pitching or the, um, you know, throwing of the cricket ball to the cricket man at the end was actually bowling, the scene. The bowling, that's right. <laughs> I, it was not coming to bowling, me. I'm yeah. not super familiar with cricket, <laughs> which, you know, many of us in the States are not. But um, it uh, that was actually one that I specifically remembered as you know as i was hearing it like oh that's straight out of like the universe and everything for some reason that probably just like mm -hmm. the climax but that i could remember for sure yeah um yeah so it's i don't know i i, I enjoyed all of it but i did feel like there was a little bit of uh taking you know taking them into the alovia plot rather than just having them learn of alovia and hack tar through like whatever means it like i said in the treatment it's literally just kind of put there as info like here's all the information i don't yeah. know how they were going to play it on screen but um right. it, it does feel kind of like they're having a few of the same conversations a few of the same kind of playing it out again but i mean it does tie it up in a nice bow at the end too so it's you know that's fine it, um yeah it could it could have been a matrix uh, observation thing like they did with the with the cricket planet yeah where they just here's how it started going you know and the matrix will show you alovia and all that they could have done that instead of actually the doctor confronting Hactar like he did yeah i actually like that they used the matrix kind of like the hitchhiker's guide like it was you know towards yeah. the beginning of yeah. the book it was yeah, very much well, uh, 
the uh, well, the Hitchhikers one. It's a little more interesting because when Slurdy Barfat is just showing the the films, he said, um, "You know, we have to wait for the intro, but please do not agree to buy anything." <laughs> and at one point, the guy goes, "Let us bow our heads in payment. Don't bow your head." <laughs> it's a very Douglas Adams humor type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, another interesting point that I found uh, just story wise in here. Um, I found it amusing that they had uh, because the actual original concept of this, I believe, uh, yeah, because it would have been it was originally written when uh, Liz Slayton was still on the show. So it predates mm -hmm. the entire, you know, key to time uh, series. So I, I kind of have to wonder if they didn't get a few ideas of, you know, what they were going to do with the whole key of time scenario from Douglas Adams uh, submission uh, of the doctor and Romana racing around trying to beat the cricket men to, to each of these parts of the, the wicket gate, because that very much reminded me just from concept of the key to time scenario of trying to find all the different pieces of the key and put it all together. Right. Um, including at points where the, both the black and white guardian show up in this, uh, but that's, that's all James Goss, but um, <laughs> so he's tied it even more so into, into key to time, but. Um, well, your, your theory, your theory is sound because the Douglas Adams script would have been finished before they started even filming uh, the ribose operation, which was a Robert Holmes story. And mm -hmm. Robert Holmes was privy to the information. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me in the least that the key to time came from Douglas Adams. Yeah. And, and you could argue by the, the key to time. Um, no, I guess it would have been the following series that he took over as script editor. But anyway, Douglas Adams was close to the program as well. So I'm not sure if it was really kind of, you know, hijacked from his, from him as much as, you know, he was probably, he was close to the program. It was probably. Um, you may have known about it. Yeah, too. I was going to say, may have been true. just straight up his idea. They're like, hey, we like that piece. Can we use that? But um, and they'd also already sure. done. I mean, they also had the keys of Marinus to look back to, which is sort of kind of also. <laughs> Right. Also six keys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A quest to find all the pieces of something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's a lot of really cool, interesting stuff. I, I another thing that I really, really loved about um, this book was its depiction of Gallifrey and Gallifrey and society. And I feel like and this stuff was in mm -hmm. uh, in Douglas Adams' notes for sure, um, or a lot of it was. And I feel like everything that plays out on the show kind of after i mean not not everything but there's a tone kind of taken from douglas adams version of gallifrey that survives his time on the show and that's a, always kind of the stuffy like um certainly that was always there of uh, in the in the mythos as we mm -hmm. learned about it through the um you know third doctor and fourth doctor's time the little bits we learned about um gallifrey but i feel like adams definitely like Adams slash Goss in this book kind of nailed Gallifrey, at least the way I've always kind of imagined it. And it really explains a lot about the doctor as a character and also like why he, you know, made the decision to, to take off and not have anything to do with the, that society. Mm -hmm. um, any thoughts on, on this, their depiction of Gallifrey? Because I feel like it's, it's hilarious, but it's also very, very like what feels authentic to me. Um, I think it's more authentic than how they presented Gallifrey and in the invasion of time per se. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was a lot more about, you know, how the doctor completely 
you know, I don't like this snobbery and this whole, you know, this whole system and, you know, we'd be bored to death before you know, lunch, that kind of thing. And I thought it was really well done. And even even noting uh, to K9 that, you know, a previous version of you is wandering around here somewhere. So <laughs> placing that moment in there as well was pretty nice, but it was a great description. Yeah, I think it does take, uh, I guess it was Robert Holmes who first brought in Gallifrey as a little, little grubbier than the more elevated things that you may, may think we saw back in the Pertwee days. And he kind of takes mm -hmm. it up to the um, nth degree. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of just, I, I like that they played up, and for, for to humorous effect, but played up the hypocrisy of the Time Lords. Um, yes. You know, how they, how they jump into all these scenarios, like, you know, the people of Cricket are going to exterminate the entire universe. So, well... We have to get in and get involved in that, but we have this rule of no interference. But you know, we're gonna <laughs> um, we're gonna do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. It just they're they're, they're perfectly uh, contemptible snobs, right? And, and you kind of understand. Mm. Uh, first of all, you can understand the doctor wanting to get out of there, but also I think, especially the fourth doctor, just seems like such a wonderful like product of that environment. Like he's the perfect rebel to that kind of. Um, and he always works so well against, I mean, just in this book is a perfect example. He works so well, I mean, just the doctor in general uh, works so well against those types of characters. And in this book, he just comes kind of up against one after another, after another of like these just contemptible people from the warlord to the, the, the easily offended planet. I've, I can't remember the name of it either. But, <laughs> um, another one I thought was cool was the, uh, fishing planet uh bethos uh, i can't i'm not going to get there to the whole name but bethos something right um it uh yeah when the real estate agent accidentally shows up there and decides that their one big chunk of land is uh really valuable and no, the people of the planet are like well we don't live on the land we live on the water so i wouldn't have any value and it's like well because we're gonna <laughs> build these buildings here and we're gonna start selling fish <laughs> so, so given that the right. sun makers was based on robert holmes experience with the tax collectors was it james Goss <laughs> or douglas adams who had a beef against real estate agents i wonder uh, i is yeah I, I don't know i guess you'd have to know all of Adam's notes, but I definitely uh, think that one comes from Goss more than Adam's, but yeah, I'm not sure. Well, the doctor had to work in a fish cannery, so I mean, he's trying to get six <laughs> in there when only five are supposed to go in there, and he goes, now I know why five go in there. <laughs> yeah, he throws off, like, fun. the whole system is like, no, you can't. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, just that whole, it was so douglas adams i feel like the whole like kind of takedown of and i won't say capitalism necessarily but like that toxic brand of um you know uh he's just they that's i don't just and i'm going to be repeating myself and over over and over about how much he nailed douglas adams but i think every one of these little scenarios or side adventures that the, they send the doctor and romana on gives you another exploration of something about quote unquote civilized society that is very um contemptible at least it'll give you there's a very extreme examples i mean to the point of farcical but um yeah i don't know it's it's done really well and that that one was one of my favorites is just mm -hmm. the the influence of this one this one real estate guy showing up and just totally changes the entire 
planet and the way that they operate so. changes their entire culture and their entire way of life and and of course they they get they'll like well then nobody has time to fish anymore <laughs> and it's like that's okay we'll take care of that <laughs> as a distinguished um, predecessor from uh, Karl Marx's uh, Uncle Scrooge comics <laughs> where Uncle yes. Scrooge goes to Shangri-La and I think like a where everybody's perfectly happy and then a bottle cap falls from the sky and starts a whole uh, chain reaction of hyper capitalism <laughs> <laughs> yes yes yeah well and i also love that it's just kind of everybody is unwilling to be rude to him is how he gets away from everyone's just so charitable and they don't you know they they don't have an idea that they should be selling the fish for money because they have no concept of money or property or all that stuff so he gets away right. with it just based on the fact that they're, right. they just give him whatever he asks for because there's no reason not to <laughs> and, and anyway um one last thing i wanted to get to um was the we talked a little bit about the the kind of cameo by margaret thatcher who is unnamed but i think it's very obvious that that's who it is mm. um i wanted to you know tip my hat yet again to dan starkey for his reading of that role because obviously he thought that's mm. who it was too but um, what, what did you guys think about her being, I know Larry, you mentioned that it was a, a, one of your favorite moments. Uh, what'd you like so much about Margaret Thatcher being there? And uh, what'd you think about Dan Starkey's reading of her? I thought it was, I thought it was highly entertaining. And I actually went back and re-listened to that part because it is one of my favorite parts of the book and Romana trying to explain, you know, why is there a pavilion? And <laughs> it was just, it was, and, and I'm just thinking about um, Gillian Anderson's portrayal in, in the crown. Mm -hmm. And that's the, you know, kind of the voice I heard, but Dan Starkey was almost dead on to that exact same tone about, you know, why is there a a pavilion and uh, and it was just funny and of course the whole romana trying to explain what you don't have one person who rules this planet <laughs> you know that whole you know i need to get to somebody in charge <laughs> well, it was it was just a very comical um um sideshow for 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 that whole thing and of course and and dan did all the voices brilliantly i thought mm -hmm. just you know Romana, he does the Margaret Thatcher, he does uh Hackbar, Hack Hactar, and he does Tom Baker extremely well. I mean, just everybody. Yeah. I mean, he did a cast of like double digits yeah. of people and made them all distinct. Like it's such a good performance. Like it's it's great. Yeah, I, so. I count like 20 characters. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's just it's amazing. It's like Nick Briggs doing Dalek voices, how he can make each one of them have their own like, yeah. But anyway, sorry, it's personality. Sorry all the monsters but he but he does have ring modulators and other things to help him <laughs> right yeah he's he's got his gadgets <laughs> yes <laughs> um another thing i know uh asad mentioned prior prior to us hitting record here today was uh an interesting depiction of <laughs> jehovah's witnesses called uh in this mm -hmm. the jehovah's witnesses um Witnesses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which seemed to be, I mean, straight definitely straight out of Douglas Adams. It seemed a little bit on the nose for a Doctor Who novel, but I certainly find it believable in the context of Adams writing. Um what what was it that uh stuck out? Well I'll I, I guess I'll tell you first of all what, what definitely stuck out to to them about about them to me was that 
they didn't seem very much like Jehovah's Witnesses, even though that was kind of where I, I felt like the joke was obviously because he called them that. But um, they were more like film producers almost or like, you know, uh, talent agents or something like they were selling the religion and like they got in there and uh, I don't know. It was interesting. What, what, what was it that you you found so interesting about those those characters? Well, I think first off, I, I think I must I misheard it when I was listening to it because I actually thought that they said that they're Jehovah's Witnesses. I didn't uh, hear that they were witnesses. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I, I mean, that's I only based on my my they hearing. Came across, <laughs> uh, no, they came across as just a standard sort of uh, just developing uh, religions to be. Uh, developed um and that's why i found it odd that he connected them as i mean sure that's a pretty well-established trope of people sort of developing religions uh, out of mm -hmm. um, whole cloth but i just found it kind of odd that he identified them so kind of uh, specifically um but i guess i yeah. just wasn't um, overall i wasn't quite sure what they put into the plot other than you know yeah. going into an aside about organized religion which again is fine but i just it just felt that it didn't necessarily organically fit in even with the whole um, cricket ethos of them like listening to these aliens rather than blasting them on site yeah. i don't know if that's right i guess it's, it kind of sets precedent <laughs> where the doc they listen to the doctor and then they're you know these guys are right at right on the heels of of that but okay. yeah i feel like they existed in the plot specifically to get douglas adams comment on theism like his kind of um his atheism or his you know comment on organized religion into this somewhere because there wasn't really another side oh. plot where where it was specifically about religion like you get a lot of his social commentary so I feel like these characters were put there, but but I agree with you, Assad, that I don't feel like they serve any other function except to make sure that, you know, right. Douglas Adams' views on, on organized religion got in here somewhere. Like that's right. kind And of again, they're, they're, they're talking to the real uh, hardcore anti-alien cricketers who are yeah. listening. So it's, <laughs> right. you know, it's, yeah, so I don't know. I, I didn't know if that really fit in. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I kind of I agree. Connect. As funny as I found it, I, I I think I agree with you. Plot wise, it doesn't really do much. Mm -hmm. And I think my connection froze um, when you were talking about the Margaret Thatcher bit. Um, I just wanted to throw in that uh, Dan Starkey did a great job, um, as mm -hmm. as he did throughout this entire book. I just had some issues with uh, her sort of being depicted sympathetically. I think I would need to talk mm -hmm. to Andrew Cartmel and the Happiness Patrol about how they feel about this. <laughs> yeah yeah she she was almost comic relief like you know in a, in a yes. way so yeah i think that's what it was supposed to be yeah well and i think so same with these jehovah's jehovah's witnesses that were in this i i, I think it was supposed to be funny it was supposed to feel like douglas adams but there are little things in there like that that i totally enjoy what they're saying and i and i can laugh along with it but was it necessary to the plot there's there's multiple points in this book where I could ask that question. However, I found it enjoyable enough that I don't feel like I'm, you know, going to nitpick it too right. badly. So, um, 
anyway, did you guys have any um, final thoughts about the Doctor Who and the Cricket Men audiobook or any, anything about it that we, we've talked about or anything that we haven't covered um, before we get to grading this thing? Um, I, I just want to say it's, it's an enjoyable read. It's a long book. So, you know, it's a, it's quite a, quite a long story, but you will definitely enjoy every minute of it because Dan Starkey brings this amazing story to life. And it's, it, when it came out, I was not quite prepared for the performance I was going to get. I kind of thought it was just going to be a reading of the book. And I thought, wow, this was a lot different. And it definitely brings out, uh, the the entire idea and of course if you're if you're a douglas adams fan and you've read the hitchhiker's guide this book will even be immensely more um entertaining to you i think that i would yeah it's definitely dan starkey makes it a very entertaining read and it's very well produced and all the sound effects and things keep uh, musical cues keep things interesting and moving along and uh, to some extent i think i just sort of find myself thinking that um why is Doctor Who and the Cricket Men when we already have life, the universe, and everything? Um, yeah. But I, and I, when I was uh, just sort of checking the internet yesterday, I did read one interesting review where somebody commented that, like, if you have recently read Life, the Universe, and Everything, then don't bother reading this. However, <laughs> if it's been a while or you know you haven't read it, then go ahead and have fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought having read Life, the Universe, and everything made this a better experience being a Doctor Who fan as well, uh, because it just did. Wow, you know, I, I know this story, but it's it's slightly different. But then there are things that are exactly the same, and that he actually took this material and turned it into, of course, a best-selling book. Sure, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and I do think it's a little bit of a, it almost an, a writing experiment in a way to you know take something that we have left of Douglas Adams that was unpublished and, and finish it and, you know, kind of place it out there where it was originally intended to be as best we can um, with what was, what we had to work with. So um, I've, I've heard that James, I have not read it and maybe you guys have, but I've heard that James Goss's um, adaptation of City of Death is also very good and very Adams, mm -hmm. you know, very much like Douglas Adams. I'm after experiencing this, I I would think I would give that a shot too. I mean, not that I wouldn't have anyway, but I'm a little more interested. It's it bumped up the on the list a little <laughs> a little further. But I'd say that I I think from what I recall of reading City of Death is that it's not written so much in the style of Douglas Adams as uh, this one is. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot of fleshing out of the things that are going on, but I don't think the style itself is so. Uh, I could be remembering wrong, but. And this one, it definitely okay. stood out. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, and uh, if you had to give this uh, Doctor Who and the Cricket Men a grade, and then we're going to be specific to the audio book here. Um, out of five Cricket Men, what do you think uh, you would give this performance or this uh, reading of the book? Well, I'd give it five out of five cricket men for this because I thought Dan nailed it exactly, you know, just nailed the performance, nailed the reading and the feel of the book. And as as well, a shout out to the producers who put this all together. Asad? Yeah, I think production wise, anywhere from 4.5 to 5 um, cricket men. I mean, I think this book itself, I might go to 3.5, but for this <laughs> audio thing itself, yeah, definitely. 4.5 mm -hmm. to 5 out of 5. 
Yeah, I, I'm going to echo that exact sentiment. And I think for, as a book, I'd probably give it about a four, but I, I, I'm not going to rate something I've never read. So, um, but as an audio book, I feel like we, it, it, it knocked it up. And for Dan Starkey, I'm going to give it a, you know what, I'm going to go for the five out of five. I found this highly, highly enjoyable. Um, and mm -hmm. I think his performance probably, you know, added that much more to it. Um, but yeah, it's a good book. It's a good listen. It is long. I mean, it's it's novel length. So if you're you know used to doing Audible or something, it's about it runs a little over ten hours. Um, so I mean, if settle in, and if that's something you're you're into, long form like audiobooks, it's 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 great. I mean, it's it's a good read. So mm -hmm. I would highly highly recommend it, especially if you got an Audible credit sitting there not doing anything. <laughs> you know, uh, give it a, give it a shot. So. Um, yeah, I think thanks to uh, both of you for joining me and thanks for putting in the 10 hours of reading this thing or listening to this thing. It took me a long time. I think you guys both finished before I did, but uh, I have a half hour commute to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I, I do as well. So I nine CDs goes by pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days commuting like bus rides. I got through a lot of a lot of stuff and it's a little harder to get through something that's 10 hours long. You don't realize it till you try and you're like, whoa, it's it's been a month and I'm still just finishing this thing up. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for for your diligence and thank you for being here to discuss with me. It's uh it was a lot of fun and I um it's a, it's a fun book, so it's hard not to have fun talking about it. But um, yeah, and if anybody out there listening uh, has any comments about the uh, Doctor Who and the Cricket Men audiobook or anything else we cover on the podcast, uh, feel free to send comments to us via the Facebook group, and that's the Police Box in the Junkyard Facebook group, or send us an email at the Video Junkyard Podcast at gmail.com and just use the subject police box. So I know it's uh, directed just specifically to me and this podcast. Um, yeah, and we'd love to hear anything that you have to say. And uh, I guess that means there's only one matter of business left, and that's to fire up the randomizer and see what it is we're going to be um, looking at next time here on the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. And let me find that. Where did that remote control go? Okay, there it is. Let me okay and uh so for next time whenever that may be uh we are going to be reading the titan comics event uh i guess it was an event series graphic novel the supremacy of the cybermen by george mann and kevin scott so um looking forward to that one i believe i started this like an issue at one point and uh i don't know if it's a bad sign that i never finished it but anyway i'm look i'm gonna have to now so <laughs> we'll see yeah <laughs> <laughs> but um so yeah i'd like to invite uh both of you or anybody out there listening uh if you want to give if supremacy of the cybermen is something you're familiar with or you want to give it a read and come on the, the show and um chat with us just send me a message via the facebook group and we'll make it happen so uh yeah, I guess that's all the business I have. Thanks again to Larry and Assad. Um, always great having you guys. And uh, always great to be here. <laughs> great to be here. Yep. <laughs> going to sign off uh, for one more Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. I hope you guys will come back and join us next time. 
Thanks. Thanks again for listening. I hope you will consider joining us next time for our discussion about a Doctor Who television story, as well as our discussions about Doctor Who audio adventures, both audio books and audio plays. Also, we will be doing discussions of Doctor Who novels, nonfiction books, and other fun stuff. Until next time, I have been your host, Eric Branson, and this has been the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Special thanks to all of our guests and contributors. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a proud member of the Video Junkyard podcast family and can be found on most major podcast providers including SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Podcast Addict, and Spotify. Doctor Who theme composed by Ron Grainer, arranged as Doctor Who retro theme by Neon Frontier. All rights to Doctor Who and its related materials belong to the BBC. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the only podcast to discuss, in story order, all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and every two weeks or so I'm joined by a two to three person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. We also get the views of intermediate, casual, and novice fans who either have never seen the show or who have never read these books until these podcasts, including Dalton Hughes and Allison Fitzsafried. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find good podcasts, or even ones like ours. You're listening to the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Enjoy your travels. Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, host and producer of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcasts. Now that you're listening to a thorough discussion of random Doctor Who episodes, why not find them on the Target book range, or the hardcover, or anything else with Doctor Who? For all things Doctor Who collectibles, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and everywhere you find your Doctor Who podcasts. Also a proud member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. You're listening to Police Box in a Junkyard Podcast. You ask him, he may show it. He simply elevates a stone where you want I would throw it.